Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I just had a great chat with David Wasserman from Vanderbilt University, a legend in glucose metabolism. We focused uh, on the liver mainly. Uh, we covered all sorts of things. So the glucose metabolism at rest during exercise, uh, what happens with insulin resistance, uh, how exercise improves insulin sensitivity, again, focusing on the liver. And also had a really nice chat about his um, late father, Carmen Wasserman, who was a a legend of exercise physiology as well, um, especially with anaerobic threshold. So enjoy. Say, so, hey, Dave, how are you? I'm doing well. And uh, how are things down under, Glenn? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. It's a bit cold. Hey, so anyway, we're talking about the liver today. Yeah. So what do we care about the liver? This is an exercise podcast. Like what, what do we care about the liver? The liver can be difficult to describe because we know the heart pumps, the muscles contract, the vessels dilate, but the liver does a little bit of everything. And it is absolutely essential if we're going to exercise for more than just a few minutes. So okay. the liver is a, is a battery. It, uh, it's a rechargeable battery at that. It releases energy when we're uh, under stress, when, we're, when our energy expenditure is high. And when we eat, uh, it recharges. Uh, the liver is a recycler, okay? And it's, it was a recycler before recycling was popular. <laughs> and uh, the liver detoxifies. So it takes nitrogenous compounds uh, during exercise. And of course, it, it's a detoxifier for many, many compounds, pharmacological agents, as well as things we produce endogenously. But um, with exercise, it's particularly significant that it takes nitrogenous compounds and uh, it'll scavenge the uh, carbons and turn it back into glucose and then make uh, urea from the uh, nitrogen that it gets. Wow, okay. So right. the, liver, the liver does everything. There's a lot of stuff there. So we're, we're gonna unpack that. How about we step right back? So as you said, the liver is doing tons of things. I, I read like 500 different different uh, jobs it does. So how about we just think, you know, we're gonna focus on metabolism here, right? So it, it does all sorts yep. of things, but let's focus on metabolism. So if we just think at, at rest, so I don't know, if you just say if you haven't eaten for a while, you know, what's, what's it doing in terms of metabolism and then compared to when you have a meal and that, and then we'll get to, into exercise. And things okay. Like that. So in the liver, uh, when, when you're in what would be a post-absorptive state, that is a fasted state, the liver is the source of glucose for the body. And it provides glucose uh, for all the tissues. The brain, when we're not exercising, is the primary site of disposal. It takes care of about 60% of the glucose. Um, and that changes dramatically when we exercise. So the muscle becomes the main site of glucose uh, consumption. Yeah. Now, when we eat, uh, the liver switches its role. So I've talked about the liver being a rechargeable battery. Eating is the recharger. And the food that comes in through our GI tract pours into the gut and, and uh, into the portal circulation and uh, is taken up by the liver. Some is stored as glycogen. Uh, others go in and uh, uh, carbons are oxidized or uh, if down. they're fatty acids, they can be metabolized in other ways. Lipoproteins, triglycerides, the whole... Uh, yeah, so there's a lot going on. Yeah, so, so just if we step back then, just at rest, what are the hormones doing? So, you know, people know if we're talking about glucose, we're talking about, you know, insulin uh, mm -hmm. and other hormones. Now, you've done years and years of study. I mean, why don't we just step back a bit? I mean, how, how long have you actually been working on the liver? I think uh, since the early 80s. I hate to, I hate to admit that. Oh. <laughs> but and you've been abandoned uh, the whole time, yeah? Uh, you know, I, since you started? Well, I started studying the liver with Mladen Vranich, my, uh, uh, my uh, PhD supervisor in Toronto in uh, 81. Um, I moved to Toronto, uh, to Nashville rather, in uh, 85. And I've been here ever since. Wow. And so, yeah. Uh, so, 
mostly in studies. Yeah. Everyone knows David Wasserman. So to understanding glucose metabolism. Yeah. So what's the glucose doing? What, you know, how much glucose is being released from the liver? What's been taken up during exercise? How, how it's regulated? He did all those amazing studies um, in chronically catheterized dogs, which people tend to get a little bit concerned about, which is... Um, which, which then you've moved more to, to my study. So, but just if we step back, then you've done. Why don't you tell me? <laughs> why don't we? Why don't you tell me what models you've used over the years? Yeah. Well, to tell you the truth, I've I've probably uh, I've studied. Uh, I, I've I've actually had a few studies in in humans, uh, rats, uh, mice, and dogs. And each model has a specific uh, purpose and offers specific benefits. So either there, sometimes you run into these uh, people who become uh, real advocates for a particular model system. But in fact, the, the thing I, I learned is that you need them all. You need to have uh, uh, to be able to translate to humans, obviously. I mean, that's really where the impact is. The dog studies were really important in, in that that was the only way that we could get access to the portal vein that perfuses the liver. So to be able to sample from that obscure vessel, uh, uh, perhaps obscure is not the right word, the liver thinks it's very important, but in terms of um, access, it's not it's uh, not accessible in humans. It's uh, you can access it in rats, but you can't. Uh, you don't have the blood volume to make the measurements you want. Uh, we can catheterize it in mice, but again, you have the blood volume issue, and it, it's better for infusions than it is for. Uh, sampling for that reason. So I've worked in a number of model systems and I think I learned a great deal from each one. And the occasional debates about the importance or the value of um, working in, uh, in, in uh, large animals versus small animals, versus, we, we need them all. Yeah. They each have their own intrinsic value. And um, so uh, I think that is uh, uh, really why I've ended up covering the spectrum. Now, the, our lab now is, is, has been exclusively mouse for the last uh, 25 years or so. And um, so, uh, you know, this is really where we've settled uh, uh, primarily because we have some really nice tools that allow us to address questions in mice that might not otherwise be uh, doable. So I'm, I've always been, uh, I've always had very skilled people uh, to uh, keep me out of trouble. And I have a good crew for the studying the mouse. Well, that's, that's how you've been able to, to really, you know, clarify for us what's happening to glucose metabolism at rest and during exercise and also with insulin resistance. So we'll, we'll get into that more. So just to give a, 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 a bit of an overview. So is it fair to say that during um, at rest, you know, insulin increases after a meal and that's an important uh, factor mm -hmm. for storing the glucose. And then during exercise, what happens to, to for insulin, for example? Well, exercise is interesting. Insulin falls uh, with exercise. And uh, the amount it falls uh, depends on, um, may depend on the intensity of exercise, the duration, the prevailing blood sugar, the nutritional state. But it's, it's safe to say that in general, the insulin falls. And that's an important thing because the fall in insulin, insulin inhibits glucose production from the liver. When insulin falls, the liver is more able to produce glucose. So the decline in insulin is critical for the mobilization of glucose from the, uh, from the liver. On the other hand, uh, the 
at a first glance, it seems paradox paradoxical that the muscle takes up more glucose in the face of less insulin. But what we now know is that the um, uh, glucose uptake in a contracting muscle is insulin independent. And I imagine you need a requisite amount of insulin just to keep the body under control, to keep lipids in order and uh, just for basic housekeeping. But the contracting muscle uh, can consume glucose in the absence of insulin. Exactly. So you did, a, you did those pioneering studies there looking at, you know, what, what's happening when you start exercises? There's a decrease in insulin, increase in glucagon, adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Do you want to, want to flesh that out a little bit and even maybe touch on the fact that if you're doing intense exercise, mm -hmm. you know, the glucose can actually increase in the blood rather than just being sort of That's right. maintained. Um, right. So the, the full hormonal picture is, is complex. And uh, the um, and those have been delineated by many people in, in the lab, including uh, Henrik Galbo uh, in the 70s and uh, in Copenhagen and uh, other people who've um, uh, who've come along since then. Now, what I've been interested in, and I think that these really are the main acute regulators of liver function is, you have a fall in insulin with the onset of exercise, but you also have a rise in glucagon. And those two things increase glucose production and allow glucose to come out, go out and meet the needs of the working muscle. Now, I wanna clarify something because if you're to measure glucagon in the systemic circulation, you won't necessarily see a rise in glucagon until uh, maybe 30 minutes in to exercise. So the important thing is what are the, what levels are the liver, is the liver seeing? What are the glucagon levels at the liver? And uh, the body is designed in a, in a very efficient way so that the pancreatic hormone secretions directly hit the liver. They drain the pancreatic vein and they go into the portal circulation and hit the liver right off. That's really efficient because it allows high glucagon levels uh, to occur without creating this large wasteful systemic glucagon uh, without having to fill up uh, extracellular, uh, uh, the extracellular pool. But as efficient as it is for the body, to work this way, it's an experimental nightmare. So the average, the, the experimenter cannot directly see uh, what glucagon levels are at the liver. And this is where the studies in the dog were important. And uh, unless one wanted to argue species differences, which you can never rule out, um, is that the glucagon levels uh, go up immediately and, uh, and to a marked extent with the onset of exercise, but the liver filters so much of the glucagon that all you see coming out into the systemic circulation is our low levels of uh, glucagon and they can be undetectable until uh, you're part way in. Now these same, um, we think this applies to humans, and I think there's actually a fair bit of data now that's saying glucagon and insulin, in fact, are the main controllers, the rise in glucagon, the decrease in insulin. And what we know from studies from Michael Kier and Bob Wolf, Phil Cryer, and uh, Carol Lavoie is that if you prevent changes in glucagon insulin using a pancreatic lamp, blood glucose will fall. Now, uh, what Phil Cryer and Carol Lavoie showed specifically are that the changes, uh, and keep in mind they're inducing these changes with a systemic, uh, systemic infusion. Um, they've delineated specific roles for glucagon and insulin. So the caveat with human studies is that you're delivering the hormones via the portal, via the systemic circulation, Whereas 
it typically enters via the uh, portal vein and it directly hits. So that's, the that's very important uh, points because, you know, as you said, most of us, when we did our studies, we'd just be measuring from a vein, you know, just like yeah. an antecubital vein. And we'd be saying, oh, glucagon didn't, didn't do anything at all, you know, 30 minutes into exercise or whatever. And, you know, but insulin you can pick up. So you say, okay, well, the glucagon is not important. It's the insulin. But, but as you say, you're, you're, we're actually not measuring where the action is. That's correct. And uh, the difference between portal vein and systemic vein glucagon is, is substantial when glucagon secretion is increased. So the liver almost seems to work like a low-pass filter uh, for uh, certain hormones, amino acids, glycerol. Things uh, can enter the liver at a very high level, but they come out at a very low level. And uh, so uh, my belief is uh, that um, glucagon is the glucagon and insulin together are the key. Uh, controllers of hepatic glucose production. All right, so we've talked about more sort of prolonged exercise where you've got a situation where the liver's releasing glucose at about the same rate that the muscle's taking up the glucose. So you actually don't yeah. see much of a change, right? And, and again, that's an interesting one because again, people might say, well, nothing's going on. But if you use traces and things, you can see there's a whole bunch of glucose being released in the liver. It's pretty right. equal taken up by the muscle, so it doesn't change. But then, you know, after an hour or so, it'll start to drop. You know, unless you have something to eat. And we'll get back to that. But what about if you do intense exercise? The glucose can actually increase, which is, you know, sort of surprises right. people actually. What, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a good question. When you get to a certain work rate, uh, glucose levels uh, increase and the severity of, of this, of uh, the intensity will determine how high the glucose will rise. I believe that the work rate where glucose actually begins to increase is going to be roughly at around what is referred to as the anaerobic or lactate threshold. And uh, I think beyond that point, you start seeing an increase in glucose and it becomes more of a, uh, a Cannon, a Walter B. Cannon type stress. So Walter B. Cannon won the Nobel Prize in uh, 1936, I believe, for describing a stress response. And I think when you get above what we might consider moderate intensity exercise, we get that stress response, glucose goes up. Now, what controls that? And um, flux studies show that, of course, you have the increase in glucose production and an increase in glucose utilization. I have not, uh, there will be people that disagree with me, but I think that, um, there's very little indication that the catecholamines are actually controlling uh, glucose production, even during high intensity exercise. So uh, blockers in, uh, do not have an effect on glucose production in healthy um, uh, subjects. Uh, in terms of curtailing glucose production, Is this like beta blockers, so blocking the Oh, blocking the adrenergic receptors. Now, there is an effect. The catecholamines are very important, but I, it's my belief that their main role is in support, is supporting liver function by mobilizing uh, substrates from the extrahepatic, from the other tissues of the body. So it mobilizes fat. It mobilizes uh, amino acids from muscle and GI tissue. But in terms of direct effects on the liver, I, I, I would, I'm hard pressed to think of really solid what, evidence. What about, given I did my PhD with Mark Hargraves, I, I can't help mentioning, you know, they, they, did, they did those studies where they infused adrenaline uh, during right. exercise. Uh, I think it was Mark Fabreo and Matt Watt. They, they did exercise at 40% of VO2 max. And they looked at the adrenaline and the glucose output from the liver, et cetera. And then they did 80% VO2 max. And then they did 40% and they infused adrenaline to bring it up to the same level as the 80%. And that did increase the liver glucose output, but not as much as the exercise. So what do you think? I guess there's a well, whole bunch going on there. But There's a lot going on. And 
catecholamines are undeniably important metabolic regulators. But it's been my impression uh, from being able to look directly at inflow and outflow from the liver that its effects are, are its effects on the liver are indirect. Now, there is one other piece of information that um, we know, and that is that the gut extracts about 30% of the catecholamines that perfuse it. And the gut is in series with the liver. So the liver levels of catecholamines are going to be about 30% lower than what we're measuring. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. I did not know that. So I think we tend to all say, oh, that, you know, the glucose goes up in the blood because of the adrenaline and whatever, but it's, it's more common. No, I think that would be wrong. <laughs> uh -huh. I say it's more complicated, not wrong, but yeah, it was probably wrong. Uh, okay. Right. Well, <laughs> that's right. That's it, it's more complicated. That's, that would be the most accurate way of uh, <laughs> saying it. So you mentioned anaerobic threshold and lactate threshold before. You know, your father was Carmen Wasserman. You know, that's amazing. What was it like being brought up with that legend? Well, you know, as a, as a kid, I, I didn't actually uh, know he was a legend. And he was just my dad. And I was lucky enough to have a father who was uh, a big influence in my life. Um, it's interesting, though, because I imagine that most of the people who are watching this, uh, who know him, know him for his research uh, in exercise, but uh, I, but myself, the family, uh, uh, we, we think of him, uh, you know, he's he's our he's father, and uh, I think professionally, we think of him primarily as a healthcare provider, and of course, we know his that he uh, is an accomplished researcher. He published papers over a period of. Um, over, you know, a span of over 70 years, I think. Uh, first paper came out in the late 40s. So, um, so certainly we knew that, but, and uh, I in particular knew that as I got older. But, um, you know, the more uh, significant, the more dominant role we saw him in was as a healthcare provider. So he was a professor at UCLA, but he also was a a physician for the county of Los Angeles. And he was very passionate about um, administering healthcare. You know, being, being a physician for the county of LA, um, it's, uh, he, he found it very, I think he found it very rewarding. He'd come home and talk about the patients uh, that he saw and a lot of his procedures, none of which were related to exercise or the things we know him from were gained national attention and um uh, he passed away uh in june of 2020 and uh i had the responsibility of going through his old correspondences and i really uh gained an appreciation of how this doctor for la county was an international resource for so many doctors in the field. He, he really um, uh, uh, he, he, he was really respected in, in that regard. Um, I could give you Glenn an entire podcast on stories about my dad and giving patient care and he, he heard every is there a doctor in the house page ever made? Uh, he probably could hear one in the place next door, but um, he always responded to those things. And I, I saw him uh, administer healthcare, save lives with uh, with a Swiss Army knife and a straw. How about that? For uh, without elaborating into more wow, detail. He told me that story <laughs> earlier. So, so basically, someone was choking. Your father heard the. Is there a doctor in the house, even though you, you guys didn't even hear it? Nobody else heard it, but he has these the little bat ears and he, he picks up these things and he responded to that. We were out for somebody's birthday. I was uh, uh, college age. I was in college and um, he responded and uh, 
he we I watched from the window and he gave he has a he had a little Swiss Army knife he carried on his keychain before TSA was a thing and uh, he gave her a tracheostomy and then in the absence of anything else he then took a straw and put it down the trach and um, and then the ambulance arrived. Uh, uh, sometime later and he and he we met he rode with the ambulance we met him in the emergency room and he was just so pleased when the doctor said that was the best incision on a trach I've ever seen oh. and uh, you know so things That's like amazing. that were uh, were uh, were exciting to him wow. now that's not to say he didn't uh, he was equally enthusiastic about his research and uh, but uh, even his research uh, uh, starting with when he moved to work with Comro in the 60s, was about developing a diagnostic tool for heart patients. So it's always been very uh, clinically oriented and very translational. So, it's definitely so to answer your question, uh, it was just fine. I, uh, I think uh, speaking for uh, my uh, mother and my three siblings, uh, he was a pretty good dad. Oh, sounds like it. No, I think it's it's a greatly simplified to say he was, you know, the anaerobic threshold man. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot, lot more to him than that. So, yeah. okay, to bring it back to the the exercise metabolism and and sort of a bit of a segue, you know, if we're talking about anaerobic threshold, we're talking about lactate. So, if we think about you know another role of the liver, which is very, very important generally, but during exercise is, is gluconeogenesis. So genesis of new glucose um, yep. during exercise. So, you know, and bringing it back to, to lactate. So one of the substrates, substrates is lactate. Maybe just right. that out a bit. What's going on with gluconeogenesis during exercise? And, and why is it necessary? Because, you know, the liver starts to run low on glycogen, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the, the role of gluconeogenesis uh, increases with the duration of exercise. So in a well-fed person, they have liver glycogen and they also make about 20% of their glucose from new carbons, from a non-glucose carbons like lactate, some amino acids, pyruvate, glycerol. And um, as glycogen levels deplete with exercise, um, or during a fast, gluconeogenesis becomes more and more important. And the important thing about exercise is the body transitions into a gluconeogenic mode. So experimentally, you can, uh, you can create the hormonal environment you see with exercise and not have an increase in gluconeogenesis. It's only during exercise where you have a lipids being mobilized from other tissues, lactate, pyruvate, uh, coming from uh, skeletal muscle. Uh, the gut dumps amino acids into the portal circulation. That sustains gluconeogenesis. So the hormones turn on the process, but you need to have the substrate mobilized to actually see glucose production from gluconeogenesis. Okay. So, yep. So, so during exercise, if we think about just a normally fed state, you know, so if you haven't, haven't fasted for three days or something, you just go and exercise. Is it fair to say probably the first hour or so it's mainly glycogenolysis, so breaking down glycogen from the liver, and then the gluconeogenesis sort of cranks up, and after about an hour, does it start to dominate? Is that a fair sort of... Yeah. Um, you know, it all. there are so many... Uh, variables, caveats, variables. So mm -hmm. the, the intensity of exercise and how fast you go through the liver glycogen, how high your liver glycogen is when you start. But what? But it is accurate to say that with uh, increasing exercise duration, maybe if you were, let's say, uh, um, you start off with a high glycogen level in your liver, then I think by about 50 minutes or so, mm -hmm. if you exercise at about 50% of your um, 
max VO2, you'll be, after about 50 minutes, you'll be mainly gluconeogenic. Yeah, and it's good to point out the very, it's a very simplistic question because it's going to depend, as you say, on the intensity, the duration, but even the fitness level. So if you're oh, yeah. a well-trained endurance person, you tend to use less glucose, less glycogen and more fat. So I assume that then, you know, naturally your liver glycogen would run out at a slower rate and you'd yep. need to crank up your gluconeogenesis later on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the key factors uh, that determine uh, endurance is how well you can preserve your muscle, your glycogen levels. Yeah. And, um, and athletes, one of the adaptations is a, the ability to conserve. And um, there are numerous ways they, they can do that. Um, one way is by increasing the ability to use fats. So they might develop more mitochondria. They might have better blood flow uh, to the muscle, allowing them to have increased reliance on bloodborne uh, lipid substrates, bloodborne substrates just altogether. But um, primarily, the main feature is, is that fatty acids uh, are a more efficient substrate during long duration exercise. Okay, you get more yep. ATP per stored uh, uh, carbon. So tell me, tell me, how does the liver actually know you're exercising? Because you know, you said before you can manipulate yeah. hormones and you won't necessarily get it's a complicated question, I'm sure, but how does the liver actually know you're, you're exercising and then start pumping out glucose? You know, uh, that's a really good question, Glenn, and I wish I knew the answer. I, I tried for a really long time, did numerous experiments to try to um, delineate uh, what causes uh, the liver to respond to exercise. I, I could be more accurate. I'm a believer in the pancreas and that the pancreas stimulates the liver. My question would be, what tells the pancreas to uh, change its hormone secretion? And I've always, initially I started with the assumption that it was under feedback control. So, you know, the liver uh, senses a drop in glucose or the muscle utilizing glucose and, or the pancreas does, increases, changes the pancreatic hormone secretion, stimulates the liver. But I'm, I did, I've done experiments in different species and Michael Kier, of course, worked uh, very much on, in this area as well uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s. And I'm not convinced I know that. And maybe the most compelling evidence actually comes from studies in the mouse. And, uh, but it's a, to tell you the truth, I haven't found anything compelling and I don't have an answer from any species I study. But we can take, we can knock out the GLUT4 transporter, prevent the exercise-induced increase in glucose uptake. And we'll still get glucose released from the liver to the point that the uh, glucagon and insulin levels go up, or glucagon goes up, insulin goes down, and the animal will get hyperglycemic. So even though we've taught that we've taken out what I thought was the cue for increased glucose production, that is glucose uptake by the muscle and a feedback mechanism. Uh, glucose uptake by the muscle was not necessary for the increase in glucose production. And we've done other studies uh, in uh, large animals that uh, also make it difficult to provide a feedback uh, mechanism uh, for glucose. So the answer then becomes, or the question then becomes, what role do feed forward mechanisms have coming from the brain, and I was a, um, I started off with a strong bias, a bias against feed forward, but now I think that that may be the explanation, is that the brain exercises a conscious voluntary thing, and when you 
say I'm going to go run, it a signal emanates that ignites a number of processes. Okay, so it's like central command that we talk about with uh, cardiovascular and respiratory. But but you mentioned Michael Kerr earlier. He did those classic studies where he actually cut the nerves going from the brain to the liver, and I thought he got no real effect. Yes, right. Output. Yeah, I, I don't think you'll get a response by uh, denervating the liver. And I, I believe Michael in the in the studies you're talking about was using patients uh, with, um, but he also did studies. Uh, uh, Dr. Vissink, who worked uh, in Copen, who works in Copenhagen, also did many of the studies uh, along those lines. Uh, he worked with Jerry Mitchell in uh, in Dallas as this well. This is the thing where it gets so confusing because the, the, my takeaway from all of those incredible studies, where you know you also did epidurals and all sorts of things in humans, yeah, was that that was that it's a redundancy. Yeah, so if, if you if you block one thing, you'll still get normal glucose output. If you block the other thing, you'll get normal glucose output. It makes it very frustrating trying to do the right. research and get an answer. But is and that, is that I, yeah? I, it's it's. I think that's really uh, a big problem at trying to pick apart the autonomic nervous system and sympathetic innervation. Is the redundancy of the system and. Um, uh, it's hard to distinguish between what's redundant and what's just altogether a different mechanism. And uh, I, um, and uh, you know, I don't know even after all of the great work that's been done from, uh, in particular, the guys in Scandinavia, but uh, in um, uh, but other groups as well. Is I I think it's really a difficult um uh question to answer and i think this is probably a mystery that extends to other systems as well not just glucose glucoregulation but what in fact makes our lungs expand when we exercise and uh and that just shows, I mean, you know, the more and more we go, the more we know, the more we realize it's just everything is so integrative. There's so much going on that to try right. and look at one thing. So, you know, so think about what's going on during exercise. You know, we've touched, you've got a decrease in insulin, you've got an increase in, in, in glucagon, you've got maybe an increase in adrenaline, depending on the, the intensity. You're going to have a, a decrease in blood flow. I don't know if that gets sense, sensed. You've got messages from the brain. You've also got... IL-6 being released from the muscle, which has been suggested may affect glucose output. And also yeah. you've got, you and others have shown activation of AMP kinase even in the liver during exercise. So, um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there is definitely a lot of going on. Uh, and I, I think there's, there are direct roles at the liver and then there are also indirect uh, signals that that set the tone for how the liver is going to respond. So, for example, there is um, there's been there have been publications out a number of them. Some of from my colleague at Vanderbilt, Alan Charrington, Richard Bergman in, in California, that show that there's an indirect effect of insulin in affecting glucose production. That is how it acts on the um, uh, in the uh, on on the adipose tissue. Also, Mike Schwartz has said there's a role of insulin in the brain, and I tend to believe that those mechanisms are important in establishing a tone for the liver, how sensitive it will be to a prevailing stimulus. So. Um, uh, I, I think they're all potentially important, but as you say, it's a big integrated response and it's hard to identify uh, any one mechanism as the single controller. Okay, well, that's all very interesting. Now, what about if we think about where things can start going astray? So, you know, if you're not very active, so if you're inactive, uh, there's a whole, you know, dietary factors that you think about. 
it's again it's very complicated what what can start going astray and then we'll think a bit later about you know can exercise help with that so mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh, the the first thing that comes to mind because of the health uh the public health problem of obesity is how an obese person responds to exercise and uh barring any sort of um musculoskeletal difficulties they have orthopedic issues um, uh, obese people are capable of exercising with out um without uh, uh risking hypoglycemia or um uh or any other sort of uh, acute disorder and in fact one thing that's an important line of uh of protection treatment for obesity or metabolic disorders is exercise because it improves this sensitivity to insulin at um, not just in skeletal muscle, but also in the liver itself. So, uh, and that helps prevent fatty liver from uh, fats from accumulating in the liver. And uh, work from John and Scott, um, John Tifo and, and Scott Rector have been very important showing how exercise increases the oxidative capacity of the liver and uh, we've shown that after a single bout of exercise there's an increase in insulin sensitivity so i think in terms of uh from a therapeutic standpoint i think it can be an important mode of therapy for people who are uh with metabolic diseases or predisposed to metabolic diseases um, Absolutely. So can yeah. I just unpack that a little bit? So, you know, we're talking about insulin, uh, insulin resistance, a lack of insulin sensitivity, obesity, et cetera. So basically um, with obesity, you, you get a situation where, you know, the body is not responding to insulin properly. So the muscle is not taking up the glucose uh, properly and also the liver is not switching off properly. So it's pumping out glucose. So the glucose becomes elevated. And you're saying, um, you know, that, and it's a very important point for people to know that during exercise, their glucose uptake is normal into the muscle, and they're, yeah, yeah, and they get an, they, and they get increases in insulin sensitivity. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, the fluxes, glucose production, glucose utilization may be dampened a little bit, but not enough to be a deterrent to exercise. Doesn't affect. Uh, it's not a limitation and it's very close to normal, if not completely normal, depending on the subject. Um, so I think exercise is a great opportunity uh, for people to uh, 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 lose weight, improve their metabolic profile, even if they don't lose weight, they're healthier. There's a redistribution of uh, lipid stores and uh the tissues have a more have a greater oxidative capacity so uh exercise regular exercise with weight loss is a tremendous advantage or is a is a great health benefit for people with obesity or metabolic diseases but exercise even if you don't lose weight is yeah. of great benefit and uh, the big issue in this, in the, uh, in our society, as it is in most industrialized society, is getting people to do it, getting people to comply with exercise programs. And uh, um, so, from that standpoint, people should find what they enjoy. And the key to the to tapping into the benefits of exercise is just doing it. So if you can get people to comply, uh, it's uh, a great health benefit for people with metabolic disease. And so an important point there you made, I just wanted to elaborate on a bit more and just, I guess, put an exclamation mark after it, is that, you know, even you talk to medical doctors now tend to think, yes, um, exercise is important because you lose weight, et cetera. But as you said, 
just one bout of exercise will increase your insulin sensitivity to 24 mm -hmm. to 48 hours or so. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, chronic exercise is even better as well. So is it fair to say that, because I've, I've been more familiar with muscle. So, you know, we always say acute bout of exercise will increase insulin sensitivity of the muscle for 24 to 48 hours. Is it about the same with the liver? Same sort of time? I, I think so. The uh, increased insulin sensitivity following exercise persists and will last uh, well after the um, bout of exercise is over. So the amazing thing is that, you know, we, we tend to say to people, it'd be great if you exercise every day, but, you know, a few days a week would be perfect. But it actually means you're, you're getting that, you know, if it's every 48 hours, then uh, if That's it's lasting right. for 48 hours, you're actually keeping it sensitive the whole time. Um, all right, so what else can go wrong in the liver, I guess? Um, so, you know, fatty, you can get fatty liver, you can get all sorts of, you know, cirrhosis yeah. from smoking and whatever. Do we know anything much about whether exercise can sort of reverse these sort of things? So, you know, if someone's already sort of down the track a little bit, do we know much about that? Can exercise turn that around, you know? Yeah, I, I, my, it, it seems, of course, exercise is good preventive medicine yep. uh, for fatty liver and metabolic diseases. Now you can decrease fatty liver up to a certain point, but once the liver starts becoming, gets to the point where it's getting fibrotic, uh, cirrhotic and uh, more extreme, it, it becomes more and more difficult and probably to reverse and probably is not reversible after a certain point. So it's like uh, many uh, disorders, you wanna catch it soon yeah. and act and begin an exercise program sooner rather than later. It's probably making me think of the heart. It's probably the same thing, the heart, as it starts to deteriorate, you start getting heart failure, you start getting liver failure. You know, if you, if you start early enough, you can, you can turn it around, you can slow it down. But, you know, after a certain point, you need a heart transplant, you need a liver transplant, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, one of the problems, I think there, there are um, people who are, have far more expertise than I do in this area, but uh, a lot, once you get to a certain point, you start developing all these cross-linking proteins it, and they have post-translational modifications that extend their half-life. And once a protein's cross-linked, it can um, be very hard to reverse uh, that. Yeah. And they can be around for years. All right, just, we'll probably start thinking about wrapping up. This has been great. Um, one last thing I was thinking about was, was, you know, we're talking about all the complexity and the integration and, and things. You start thinking about cross-talk between organs. So, you know, the, we always think about the muscle talking to other structures such as I said IL-6 being released from the muscle, interacting with the liver. What's going on with the liver with crosstalk? Is, it, is the liver communicating, you know, during exercise with other organs? Is the other organs talking to the liver? I, I know it's probably complex again, but. Well, it is, um, there's a lot of unknown, untapped uh, uh, information, a lot to learn. So the liver is loaded with, uh, nerves. It's heavily innervated by the autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic and sympathetic. That's afferent and efferent. But also there are hepatokines. There are proteins and that are, that are released from the liver. And I think that uh, this is a whole domain that remains to be fully defined. Um, in fact, I, I think maybe we've just scraped the surface. Mm -hmm. So there have been some terrific studies, some, some of which by uh, Matthew Watt, uh, one of your uh, homies in uh, Melbourne, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, some, uh, and others who've shown um, that you have proteins that are secreted by the liver and, and they can increase during exercise. Now, what they do uh, is the purpose of these hormones, whether they're just, uh, whether they have a physio physiological role within the context of exercise remains to be better elucidated. 
what I uh, tell people, and I'm asked this all the time, just kidding, I'm rarely asked this, but the every organ, you can assume that there's communication uh, with every, between organs and the kidney and the liver, the muscle, the liver, and it can be humoral or neural and- So humorals uh, in the blood? Yes, just to clarify. Humoral would be a blood-borne yeah, signal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think there's more that is unknown than is known right now. There's a lot to learn. Okay, great. Right, one last thing I was just thinking, it was, uh, you know, you said if you have GLUT4 knockout, so that's glucose transporter in the muscle, the main one for taking out glucose, and you exercise, uh, you know, you still get an elevation in glucose. What about, we did studies where we looked at carbohydrate ingestion during exercise, uh, mm -hmm. using like double traces. So we could see the glucose uptake by the muscle, but also the lived glucose output, and then how much glucose was coming from the gut. And we right. found that when you ingest carbohydrate during exercise, you do shut off, not fully, the liver. So yeah. th that's interesting that it doesn't really happen though, if you have the GLUT4, you don't really shut the liver off, is that what you're saying? Well, the, I think we're talking, these are different situations because when you ingest glucose, you're going to have an increase in insulin, insulin levels and all these things that act to squash the liver. Exactly. So the liver is, I talked before about how the liver can be a rechargeable battery. Well, you confuse it when you eat and <laughs> exercise exactly. and you have, and it's in the middle of recharging while it's also discharging. Yeah. Now, uh, the GLUT4 knockouts study glucose feedback in a different way because it does it without uh, having uh, extra fuels coming in there. And in fact, it prevents the normal exercise induced increase in glucose uptake. And uh, you need very, GLUT4 very to pick up glucose. So, very different. Yeah. So, that this is actually a look, nice little segue. We're going to have Louise Burke on uh in a few days and she'll be talking about carbohydrate metabolism during exercise and you know carbohydrate okay. drinks and things like that right. she would be the expert <laughs> all right well thank you very much it's been great it's probably got a bit bit complicated for some people but uh i was loving it so that's great thank you <laughs> yeah. well it's been my pleasure glenn thank you very much for asking for asking me to participate okay good on you see you mate bye-bye